0: No purchase necessary. Void we're prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What they discovered upon their arrival was almost unspeakable. we are lost all of them. Some form or another. I'm not guilty. <laughs> <laughs> the dead won't bother you. It's the living you got to worry about. If I couldn't keep them there with me whole, I, at least I felt that I could keep uh, their skeletons.
1: Hello and welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I'm Vicki.
0: And
2: I'm Janelle. <laughs> and
1: <laughs> we're back again with another great episode for you this week. If this is your first time listening, a special hello to you. Um, how are you, Janelle? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Janelle's oh, in- okay. Janelle's in the midst of having a breakdown. existential
2: crisis. <laughs> no, it's the last couple of weeks of the semester, so yeah, working at a school and also being a student is very stressful. The last two weeks, and on top of it, it's just been like a weird time this week. So it's
1: just compounding <laughs> everything. It's
2: just like, where am I?
1: <laughs> It's okay. We're going to talk about some murder, and yes. then it'll be Take fine. Take my mind off of everything. <laughs> this will totally
2: help any, How life. is everyone else's life worse than mine? To give me some perspective. Yeah,
1: They're dead. I mm-hmm. mean, that's... Yep. A-
2: <laughs> All right. Perspective <laughs> oh taken.
1: Okay. Well, we're going to head over <laughs> to the newsroom. Unfit to our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching
0: our TVs while some local newscaster tells us
1: so our news this week comes from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Sweet, I've been there. Where <laughs> a haunted house actor was shot in a haunted house. In a haunted house. Okay. Before anybody asks, yes, haunted houses are open year-round. Mm-hmm. People especially are especially past-
2: tourist places. Yes, people
1: are constantly surprised by this, even. Look in your local area. They're especially open around holidays. You know how I feel about this. Very passionate about the haunted house scene. Okay. So, Keel Charles Brown and several others were walking through the Hollywood Wax Museum haunted house when they got scared by an actor. Yep. That's what you're there for. This is what you would expect. Um, One of the people in the group fell down, at which point a gun slid across the floor. And they are... (laughs) They're still trying to figure out where this gun came from. Like, if somebody carried it in, they have not said, like, where this gun came from. But somebody falls down. This gun slides across the floor, floor to Brown. He then picks up the firearm, thinking it's a prop. Okay. And mm-hmm. shoots the actor twice, hitting him in the shoulder. Um,
2: yeah, no. it's never, It's never a prop if it's not in the hands
1: of a person who's acting. <laughs> yeah, like that. I don't really feel like... That is something that you would leave where people could get to it, at least. Yeah. Like, Yeah, that must have fell out of someone's pants. You would think so. Um, bra is also charged with contributing to the delinquency of a minor after he handed the gun to a 15-year-old following <laughs> being told it was real. Okay. He just, like, handed the gun off. You're um, going to want to take this, holding it by the very edge. Super yeah. safe. Yeah. <laughs> So he is uh he was just recently arraigned, and they set bond and all that fun stuff, but you know I just it makes me we gotta look out look out you gotta look out for people guys, haunted house actors, be careful out
0: there,
2: yeah, <laughs> I've been to Myrtle Beach, and that does sound like a very Myrtle beach story, yeah, yeah, any of those towns like we went to Virginia Beach, Virginia too, like they're not great,
1: <laughs> they're touristy and god awful, <laughs> yeah, don't go. <laughs> Uh, next, we are going to move on to Netflix and Kill, where this week we are talking about Bad Vegan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You've seen, I'm yes. assuming. Okay. Yeah. So before... What a mindfuck. Before, <laughs> yes. Uh, okay. So <laughs> let's <laughs> talk about what it is first. So... A mindfuck. Like I just said, Vicky. <laughs> Bad Vegan is a documentary series that looks at Sarma Mengeles who was the former owner of New York City raw vegan restaurant, Pure Food and Wine. She marries this guy named Anthony Stranges, who was not going by that name. He was going by like Shane Fox, I think. Yeah, I had a lot um, of uses. Yeah, who gets Sarma to transfer millions of dollars from the business to him, claiming he'd return it tenfold, make all of her dreams come true, and could make her dog immortal. Uh-huh. <laughs> when things start closing in, the couple flees to New York, spends 10 months on the run before being arrested by police, thanks to a pizza delivery order. Sarma pled guilty to larceny tax fraud and conspiring to, def- to defraud, receiving four months in prison. And Anthony Strangis also pled guilty to four counts of grand larceny, receiving one year in jail, five years probation, and one was required to pay $840,000 in restitution. Okay, that's what it is. It is such a weird story.
2: It is seems like it's almost fake how fucking weird it is
1: (laughs) it really and there's like so this restaurant was one of these these very upscale, like, celebrities dined there, very exclusive kind of thing. Yeah. I was curious, because you, you are a vegetarian, part-time oh. vegan. Uh, I, don't, I don't know about part-time vegan. <laughs> very I part-time. don't drink
2: milk anymore, but I do eat fucking yeah. cheese. <laughs> I mean,
1: Midwest. Yeah. We love our cheese.
2: I, I'm also Italian. Like, you can't have fucking yeah. pasta without Parmesan. I've tried it. It's fucking awful.
1: What is your take Ooh. on the raw vegan, like... I've tried it. I've
2: tried it. There are some, like, I've had raw uh, apple crisp before. Like, there's some things that you can do with uncooked stuff that's pretty tasty, but most of the time it's fucking disgusting.
1: (laughs) Fair, fair.
2: Like, you're using dehydrators, Mm -hmm. and you're doing a lot of like, um, pickling and fermenting. Gotcha. Um, So, there's nothing is cooked. Yeah. Nothing gets hot. Yeah. But you're kind of like Breaking down some of the stuff a little bit by adding like vinegars and dehydrating it a little bit. Okay. Um, so, like, the raw apple crisp I had was just like chopped up apples with like a little bit of honey and then it was like a dehydrated crumble of like oats on top with a little bit of sugar. It's oh. fine. You know? Okay. It's just, it's, I mean, it sounds it's like not... eating an apple with yeah. honey on it. That's yeah. fine. Yeah. But like, you know, they make like raw. Burgers, which is like dehydrated beets and seeds and nuts all smashed together with raw
1: ketchup. Like really pretentious. It's a (laughs) hundred percent like a really pretentious thing. Yeah. And
2: also not cooking certain things is actually really bad for your stomach. Like if you don't, if you eat raw grains, it takes way more time for your stomach to digest that and causes actually more gas in your like intestinal tract because it's trying to break it down harder yeah so like some things are not good for you if mm-hmm. they're not cooked yeah. so it's stupid
1: i just want i was curious watching this i was like i gotta get janelle's take on this like
2: people can style eat whatever of vegan. they want i, I guess care. but it just, but seems just weird. know like how food affects your body yeah. and just be aware of that yeah if you still consciously want to make those choices go for it the, the but it, don't it. complain
1: <laughs> You have a tummy ache later. The interesting part about this documentary is the entire thing is pretty much told by Sarma. Mm -hmm. Um, Which uh, I liked. I'm going to quote my
2: art professor here. You are the most unreliable narrator in your own story.
1: Yes. Yeah. And I do. The thing is, is I do. And yes, I agree. (laughs) I do think her perspective is valuable because like really like she was the only one that was in it and Mm -hmm. can even attempt to explain why she went along with any of these like very strange things that she's being told and i'm talking we're talking like higher orders of like secret societies of Mm -hmm. people watching your moves and trying to like that's what this guy was claiming was going on i mean
2: i really do people i do really think that people were after him for other reasons yeah like the being watched thing i do think is true but the other stuff is just so fucking mind-blowing mm-hmm. like i it's, it goes into the same vein of cults you know mm-hmm. like just the mind control and i have such a hard time understanding that because i'm such the person who's like this fucking person's you know lying i'm always thinking people are lying you know i always like don't take people seriously and it's yeah. always face value yeah so i just it's hard for me to sometimes understand how someone could be like you can make my dog immortal yeah and all i have to do is give you five thousand dollars yeah <laughs> it's like
1: what <laughs> yeah and in the end she had given him it was something like just over six million dollars mm-hmm. and her mother had gotten pulled into this by just, yeah it's, fucking it's mind-blowing it's a very i definitely think everybody should watch it. i thought it was really good let me tell you mm-hmm. say that like it was very entertaining, but you're just going to be going what? Yeah, the whole time. <laughs> it is so strange, and I think people haven't watched it because they're like, "Oh, it's some vegan something something something," and I'm like, "No, it's actually a very crazy true crime story."
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, nuts. Yes, and I just really appreciated the Chipotle relationship that was happening at the end. <laughs>
1: like I yeah, I just couldn't Bobbing
2: stop over Chipotle. Like, oh my God. She came in every day, and got a regular order. <laughs> yeah,
1: Oh, cute, oh, it's cute. Too funny, anyway. Um, so it's called Bad Vegan. It's on Netflix, so you can check it out right now. <laughs> this is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all our listeners. We will be talking about um, instances of murder and mine is not gruesome torture. At all. Mine's pretty gruesome. <laughs> mine yeah, is light and fluffy. <laughs> yeah, mine is um. Well, okay. We'll find out. We'll find out. (laughs) Um, So this week, we are taking a little trip down to our favorite state of Florida.
2: Oh, I used to go on trips with my parents to Florida. I hated
1: every fucking minute of it. I feel like Florida is like the destination for people in Illinois to go to if they want to go to somewhere exotic that's like summery. It's like Florida.
2: If you find every picture that we've ever taken when we were in Florida... The faces I make are just pure abject, like, why
1: (laughs) did you bring me here? (laughs) Yeah, I've definitely, I mean, I've definitely been to Florida my fair share of times. Mm -hmm. And it was fine. You know, it's fine. I'm normally doing the touristy things. The only time I had a good time, this might say something about my personality, is when we were in the Keys and there
2: was a hurricane coming in. Nice. And I got to see firsthand. Yeah, because if you're not familiar, the keys are a fucking archipelago off fucking Florida, surrounded by water. We
1: were like, good chance maybe we could die. And I'm like, whoa, this is fucking intense. Yeah, that totally tracks. <laughs> that sounds exactly like something you would do. Yep. So that's the only time I've had a good time in Florida. <laughs> so if you recall, a couple episodes I did coming in for the part two? Yeah, I did a story about the Sun Gym gang leaving it on a cliffhanger. Well, I'm back to, to finish. Um, so if you haven't listened to episode 131 yet, uh go back and listen to that episode because the first part of that story is all contained in there. This is almost equal equal in length, (laughs) which, again, is why I had to split it up. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm going to give you a quick recap uh, for everybody who did listen to episode 131. You'll remember all this. So what happened? John Meese was the owner of Sun Gym. He hires ex-con Daniel Lugo to help revive the gym, which he does, but he also continues to run these like kind of small white collar cons. Lugo hooks up with Carl Weeks, Stevenson Pierre, and Adrian Dorval, who hatch a plan to kidnap Mark Schiller and recover stolen money that belonged to a man named John Delgado. After many failed and sometimes comical kidnap attempts, um, the gang finally nab. Schiller in the parking lot of a Schlotzky's, taking him to a warehouse owned by Delgado. There, they repeatedly tortured uh, Schiller while having him blindly sign away all of his assets. They forced him to make phone calls to family and associates, resulting in his wife and child moving back to Colombia after there was like a full transfer of his assets by his attorney. Uh, once they were finished, the gang attempted to kill Schiller by getting him drunk and having him crash his car. The crash wasn't fatal. So they tried to light him on fire. And then when he still hadn't died, they ran him over twice with the car. Cut to Schiller waking up. (laughs) Cut to Schiller waking up at the hospital, contacting private detective Dubois, um, at Dubois to help recover his assets. Uh, and after an extensive investigation, even more hijinks, DuBois and Schiller finally take their findings to the police and the FBI, none of which believe what they are saying. And Schiller, again, leaves the country for Columbia. Now, just as a reminder, this whole story was part um, is picked up by Michael Bay and turned into the 2013 film Pain and Game Uh, which was based off of a series of articles by the same name in the Miami New Times written by Pete Collins. This is largely where most of my research comes from um, because it really is just like the most comprehensive telling of this absolutely insane series of Mm -hmm. events. Okay. (laughs) Does that all... All tracks. All tracks, Mm -hmm. all comes flooding back to you what we talked about like a month ago. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. So by this point in time, Lugo had already begun looking for his next big score. And again, like tapping the clientele at Sun Jim, Lugo began focusing on a Jamaican man named Winston Lee, who owned a successful auto repair shop. Now, apparently Lee had somehow like offended Dorbel, who claimed to have like overheard him making fun of his intelligence. He's like, okay. this guy thinks I'm dumb. Let's get him.
2: That definitely sounds like a a know, meathead thing. A, I was going to say a steroid reaction. <laughs> oh, also that. Yeah, yeah they were all reaction. heavily <laughs> taking steroids, yeah.
1: too. There was also, like, they wanted to get Delgado on board for this one as well. And so they told him, Lugo told him that Lee had been actively selling drugs in the black community, which may or may not have been true. I don't actually know. But it sounds like something made up to me. <laughs> To just get Delgado involved. Mm -hmm. So they decided this time to cut Weeks and Pierre out of this plan because they were like not really thrilled with how they handled everything that went down with Mark Schiller. So their first plan... (laughs) Involved borrowing a delivery uniform and having Delgado pose as a UPS driver, dropping off a package at Lee's house. And when he opened the door, Lugo and Dorbal would rush in, kidnapping Lee and taking him to the warehouse. So it's essentially, they're trying to do the same thing they did with Mark Schiller, where they take somebody away from their property, put them in this warehouse, and then have them sign all their assets away. Mm-hmm. Later, Lugo devised a plan that involved his girlfriend, where she would move in next door, befriend Lee, and then lure him to her apartment where Lugo and Dorable would kidnap kidnap him. Neither of these plans actually went forward because Lee frequently traveled back and forth from the US to Jamaica. And so they couldn't like nail down a time when they knew he was going to be home because he would like just be here for a week, be there for a week and just go back and forth. So it never happened. (laughs) Now, I am going to introduce a brand new character (laughs) to this series of events, an incredibly rich man named Frank Griga. Now, Griga was born in Berlin in 1961 to a Hungarian diplomat. He moved to the U.S. in the mid-80s, where he worked in New York as a car washer and foreign car mechanic. Later, he decided to move to Miami, where he worked for a luxury car dealership before deciding to strike out on his own. Okay. Now. Classic immigrant story. <laughs> at this point in the late 80s to early 90s.
2: Florida was wild.
1: Also, <laughs> 800 and 900 phone-in numbers were a big thing.
2: Oh, for a good time call. Yes.
1: So he actually. It is Cleo. <laughs> Also basically oh yeah. I mean literally like they had video game in things. They had like recipes and like mm-hmm. you know, I mean it was just like anything you could think of there was a calling number for yeah. it. Um lots of sex though. Lots of sex. So much sex. <laughs> yes. So he actually decided to start with 976 cars which provided info about used okay. cars. <laughs> that made me think of eight, six, seven cars for kids. Oh, God. Yeah, you know. Hope that jingle mm. ruins your day. <laughs> um, he then branched off into weather lines, so you could, like, call up and get the weather forecast. Okay, I um, can see that. Mm-hmm. Before or the people who would call for the... What time is it? <laughs> <Those> <laughs> can you tell me what day? time it is? The time is. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So he did the cars and weather before he delved into the sex lines, where he finally made the big bucks. Because oh, it yeah. was like people were charging like $5 a minute mm-hmm. for these phone sex lines. Mm-hmm. That's where the money and they was they keep
2: at. you going.
1: <laughs> yes, they do. That's what they're trained to do. <laughs> um, according to the Miami New Times, quote, many Hungarians in Miami thought he was the Alexander Graham Bell of phone sex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know. Oh, my god. The dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> uh in 1994 alone, Griga netted approximately $3 million just from that tracks. Just from <laughs> phone text lines. So Griga kind of comes into this picture when he like he got on the Sun Jim Gangs radar thanks to a girlfriend of Dorble's who had previously dated Griga. Uh, She told Dorval all about his escapades and how wealthy he was. And Dorval immediately was like, I want to I want to meet this guy for a business deal. Mm
0: -hmm. Heavy quotes around (laughs) business
1: deal through his friend uh, through. I'm sorry, through his girlfriend, Dorval was introduced to Attila Wayland, who offered to like sort of make an introduction between these guys and Griga and Wayland was under the impression that it was for this bit, an actual business deal. Dorval met with Wayland to go over the idea he had, and it had something to do with like phone lines in India, which sounded good to Wayland because he was like Griga knows the phone industry, um, and he was at the time trying to like get out of the phone sex uh, industry, mm-hmm. and so. In the meantime, Durbel got back in connection with big Mario Sanchez, who was kind of like just in the last part of the story, like the muscle. He was the intimidator. And he had helped them kind of in the final stages of the Schiller scheme. He attempted to lobby his aide with another job, um, but he refused after what happened last time. He's like, fuck no, you guys are crazy. Instead, they attempted to get Weeks involved in their plans. However, he also refused because he thought that they it was a plot to get him and Griga at the warehouse so that he could also be killed. Mm. They were like, these guys are, are after me. So in a last ditch effort to have another person help them with what was actually kidnapping, if you haven't figured it out by now, they were they were trying to kidnap yep. Griega. <laughs> um, Lugo decided to loop into Loop. His girlfriend in um, Sabina Petruscu, Petrescu,
0: Sabina Russian? Petrescu,
1: possibly. <laughs> Sounds like a Russian name. OK, now there's a small little detail that I have left out until now, mainly mm-hmm. because it is not it has not really been relevant until now, because there's all there's this huge chunk of the story that has to do with these relationships that Lugo and Dorbel have with these women. But Lugo had actually convinced uh, Petrescu that he was a CIA agent. Mm. undercover, which is why, like, none of the weirdness that was going on was actually weird. It's because he worked for the CIA. But also,
2: if you worked for the CIA, you wouldn't tell anyone you worked for the CIA. So,
1: like, duh. Yeah, but he... They're in love. Like, you wouldn't tell anybody, but the person you actually love, right? No. Mm -mm. It's the last person you tell, because if they know, then
2: they're going to get killed.
1: That's how it works. (laughs) So, (laughs) he... Uses this to his advantage to be like, I need your help for this undercover operation. It involves this guy named Frank Griga and his girlfriend, Christina Furton. They're like these Hungarians who like Frank Riga, uses women for sex and they're avoiding these U.S. tax laws. So he told her that the plan was to kidnap Frank Riga and his girlfriend, Christina Furton, from their mansion and that she was to wait until she saw Lugo drive a Lamborghini out of the garage before pulling Lugo's own car into the garage where they would stash Griga and Ferton in the trunk until they okay. went on to the next piece of their plan. Now, in the meantime, um, Waylon, who had made these original introductions, had gone to Griga's house for a birthday party where he had told Griga that... He had some business associates he wanted to introduce. They had this really great business idea. Griga was like, yep, sounds good. They set up a time to meet for the following evening. Wayland actually joined Lugo and Dorval at that first meeting with Griga, where they discussed the expansion. Essentially, it was the expansion of a telecom company into India. Hmm. And Griga was intrigued by the idea and indicated that he was likely to invest after they could figure out some of the details. Ferton even gave the, man a, the men a tour of the mansion before they left. Uh, and then when the couple or when the the pair got back to Lugo's apartment, they decided to go the following day to kidnap the couple. The next morning, <laughs> the next morning, before they had even arrived at the mansion, the group realized that they had forgotten duct tape. So they had to stop at the store. <laughs> Get some duct tape. Always
2: double check your bug out bag, my friend.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, this whole stop at the store caused extra problems because they realized that as they were walking into the store, Dorbel's, um he had a gun in his belt and it was like clearly visible to everybody in the store. So they're like walking into the store with this gun. But also it's to
2: Florida. So to it's kind of typical.
1: <laughs> yeah. But even still, they were like. <laughs> yeah, that's not great. Um, so they 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 pick up the duct tape. They stop at the store, pick up the duct tape, continue on. They arrive at the house, and Lugo and dorbell get out of the car carrying a laptop, um, and then entered the house after Furton answered the door. After about fifteen minutes of waiting, the two men returned to the car, and everybody left. Apparently, while they were inside, Lugo had gifted Griga this laptop for some reason, which everybody found really weird because like. Yeah. He was like, well, we already said we were interested in investing. It's weird to gift somebody a laptop anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, And he found it strange enough that he called Waylon and was like, what the fuck is up with these guys? They just gave, they came by and then gave me a laptop and then left. And then there would actually be a, a second failed attempt at trying to kidnap these guys after they met for dinner later that night. So a few days later, on May 4th, 1995, Lugo and Dorbel again met with Griga and Ferton for dinner. They all met up at Griga's mansion before um, leaving for Shula's Steakhouse. However, by the time they arrived, the restaurant was closed. So instead, they went back to Dorbel's townhouse, um, his like townhouse apartment. Lugo and Ferton sat and watched TV while Dorbel took Griga into a different room to talk uh, business but it wasn't long before there was just like a noise coming from the other room that was way too much to ignore. Sounded like somebody was in a tussle. Uh, so they both rush in there to see Dorbel and Griga fighting. And Griega was like bleeding from the head because he'd been hit with something. There was blood splatter like all over the walls. They were in the kitchen. So it was like on the microwave, on the stove, like everywhere. Um, And Lugo, at that point, when he realized what was going on, attempted to subdue Furtin and put her in handcuffs and duct tape before injecting her with rompin, which is basically horse tranquilizer, Mm -hmm. Um, and then putting a ninja hood on her head. And they decided to inject uh, Griga as well, just to be sure, like, nobody was going to wake up and, like, cause issues. Mm -hmm. So now (laughs) they have these two people in their house. Um, that are sedated. It wasn't long before they realized that rather than sedating Griga, that he was actually dying on their kitchen floor. And so they moved him into the bathtub where he was essentially left to bleed out. Mm-hmm. Delgado at this point was on standby, like that whole time waiting for a phone call to transport Griga and Ferton from wherever they were at to the warehouse. Um, but the phone didn't ring like all night. So he went to bed and it wasn't until the following morning that he received a call from Lugo saying that they had actually accidentally killed Griga early after a struggle, but Ferton was still alive. So like they could still get codes to things, security codes and like some information. Um, when he arrived at the townhouse apartment, he immediately noticed that the air conditioning had been turned all the way down and it was extremely cold in the apartment which is something that people with bodies in their apartments do huh.
2: which is why i could never keep a body in my house because no it doesn't get cold enough no air conditioning none no, at no. all nope. you don't have any nope i thought you had like
1: a box unit or something nope. girl that's rough <laughs> when furton finally came to she obviously was hysterical she was asking for her boyfriend the gang attempted to, like, get security codes and alarm codes out of her. But she just kept asking for Griga. So they injected her with some more rompin. Part of, like, the issue was that Furton was also Hungarian. And she knew very little English. So, like, she also didn't necessarily understand what they were saying. Mm-hmm. As they're just, like, y- shouting at her for these alarm codes. Has no idea what's going on. No idea what they're saying. So... They shoot her with more tranquilizer. Um, she eventually like was able to give them a few numbers before they administered a third fatal dose of tranquilizer. Mm-hmm. Thinking that they had the door code, Lugo leaves to go to the mansion, but the numbers that she had given them were nothing. They were just nonsense. And so he called Dorable to be like, wake her up and try again. And that's when they realized that she was dead. Mm-hmm. Which Part of me is like fucking good. These guys, I'm glad they got wrong door codes. It took about a day for them to decide what they were going to do with all of these bodies um, that they just now had sitting around. Mm -hmm. But Delgado went off to rent a U-Haul van while Dorbel and Lugo went to Home Depot. Again, from the Miami New Times, their haul included, quote, Red plastic cleaning buckets, 10-gallon containers of ready-road repair tar, floor fans, industrial-strength towels, a 100-foot roll of hefty bags, propane gas tanks, face goggles, and gardening gloves, a black iron security grate, the kind that fits over a window, and a fire extinguisher, and an 18-inch gas-powered chainsaw. The total, which they put on Dorbel's American Express card, came to $666 with tax evil <laughs> it's like ooh, spooky now after returning to the townhouse uh griga's body was placed into the couch courtesy of mark schiller this was like they talk a lot about this is mark schiller's stolen couch that they are now putting griga's body into mm-hmm. Ferton's body was placed into a box both of them were loaded onto the U-Haul and taken to the warehouse where their bodies were cleaned and dismembered. In the meantime, Griga's maid, Esther Toth, arrived to begin her workday. But something felt like she's got a weird vibe when she walked into the house and decided to go to one of the neighbors to have somebody walk into the house with her. Mm-hmm. And they found that the dog that Griga and Furton owned had completely torn apart the house. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like weird that the dog was left alone. They, they never would have left the dog alone. So they started kind of looking around, checked the garage, did not see the Lambo in the garage. They also found two round trip tickets for the previous day upstairs next to passports, meaning they hadn't left anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, after about like 24 hours of their friends kind of doing their own little investigative work, they finally decided to call the Golden Beach Police Department. Shortly after the investigation into Griga and Ferton's disappearances, one of their friends happened to spot Griega's Lamborghini in a convoy on the outskirts of Dade County. So they followed, it was like three cars with the Lamborghini in the middle. Um, so he followed the three of them in kind of a weird car chase situation. They like noticed somebody was following, tried to block him off. He caught up. He recognizes that one of the drivers of the car was Daniel Lugo because he had seen him before. And then the following day, Grigas' Lambo was discovered completely abandoned near a wooded area with all of the doors open, the windows down and the keys still in the ignition. A state trooper that was called to the scene determined that the car had not been reported stolen at the time, which I find really interesting because they were like simultaneously investigating the disappearances, but like. Did nobody say anything about the Lamborghini that wasn't in the garage? Or maybe they were thinking, well, maybe they took the Lamborghini so they Mm -hmm. didn't report it stolen yet?
2: Yeah. It could be that they were in the car. Yeah. And then something happened to them. So then it wouldn't be reported stolen.
1: Right. Yeah. So either way, it hadn't been Mm -hmm. reported stolen. Um, And by this point, the police had the information about Lugo and the Sun Jim gang. So... They finally decided to reach back out to Ed Dubois, who was the P.I. in the Mark Schiller case. Um, He went through all of the details of the case with investigators, um, told them that they had the information for six weeks already and they did nothing with it. And now this had happened like this is on your guys' hands. We came to you. We literally handed you all this information on a silver platter and you guys did fucking nothing with it. On June 3rd, 1995, 75 officers, including homicide squads, SWAT, and hostage negotiators, gathered to serve warrants on the homes of Daniel Lugo, George Delgado, Adrian Dorbel, and John Meese. Upon interrogation, Dorbel admitted to participating in Schiller's kidnapping but stopped talking shortly after. Lugo had decided already to flee to the Bahamas with his girlfriend and parents, so he was out of the country. but. Was arrested five days later in Nassau and brought back to Miami. He also began cooperating with police almost immediately and agreed to show police where Griga and Ferton's remains had been hidden. Um, and after an agreement had like officially been drawn up, he took them out to a drainage ditch where they had submerged fifty-five gallon barrels that contained their remains. Mm. Now after further examination of the barrels by the medical examiner, it was discovered that the barrels only contained the torsos and not the arms and legs, which they were like we that's what we need to identify that these bodies are who you say they are. Mm-hmm. Luckily, they were able to identify Furton's body after tracing her breast implants to the surgeon that had done the surgery, and I think it was the first time in Dade County that they, they'd used breast implants to like identify mm-hmm. a body because yeah, they have serial numbers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they still needed the arms and legs to positively identify Griega's body. Luckily for investigators, they received an anonymous tip with the location saying Dorval had transported them out there. Now, police did go after some of the other minor players, including the girlfriends, Carl Weeks, Stevenson, Pierre. In March, 1996, a grand jury returned a 46 count indictment against Lugo and Dorval that included racketeering, first degree murder, Attempted extortion, grand theft auto, armed kidnapping, armed robbery, burglary, possess- possession of an identification plate, arson, extortion, money laundering, and forgery. Like. It's a lot. Every mm-hmm. crime that you could <laughs> do, pretty much. It's like yeah. all the crimes in one. The trial, it was so weird reading about the trial because it was handled in this very bizarre way where they actually sat two juries And held the trials against Lugo and the trial against Dorbel and Mies simultaneously. But they had two separate juries listening to the evidence against Lugo and then the evidence against Dorbel and Mies. Hmm. I was like, that is so weird. Yeah. But they did all of it at once. Okay. Yeah, that's strange. Um, It was the longest and most expensive trial in Dade County history with over... 1,200 pieces of evidence and 98 witnesses, including Mark Schiller, who came to testify. Wow. Yeah. And because he, he was, again, still staying in Columbia.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Neither Lugo nor Do- Dorval's attorneys presented any defense. And, How could you? <laughs> and John Meese's attorney only called one witness. They're doing really good at their job. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at a, at a certain point, it is like, we're boned. Like,
2: Yeah, but as a lawyer, it's your job to find a way to get
1: unboned. (laughs) I have never really understood the strategy of just not putting on a defense. And I think it is sort of like the idea of giving somebody enough rope to hang themselves, right? Like if the prosecution can put on a really shitty case, then we don't have to do anything technically. I mean, technically, you don't have to put on a defense at all. But like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. There's There's just something very... Weird about that choice to me, mm-hmm. but I'm not an attorney, so yeah. maybe there's some secret attorney code. Who knows? Um, all three men were found guilty, Dorbel and Lugo were given life in prison, while Meese received 56 years. Um, I did also see that Dorbel had actually had his uh, life in pr- imprisonment sentence. Reversed because of some changes in the law in 2017. Though I didn't look into what those changes were, and I think it was from life to well, actually, I'm not sure. I'd have to look into that, mm-hmm. but I didn't. I don't know why. <laughs> you guys will have to Details. look at one Yeah, we don't do that here. No. <laughs> um, in an interesting twist, after testifying at Lugal, Dorbel, and Mises sentencing hearing, like while he was exiting the courthouse. Mark Schiller was arrested by the FBI for, quote, orchestrating a fraudulent Medicare billing scheme that generated around $14 million. Oh my God. (laughs) So he kind of felt all of this resentment towards the prosecuting attorney because he felt like she had set him up. And his attorney, even like his personal attorney, even had told him not to come back to the United States. Um, I don't know that he knew that he was being investigated by the FBI or not. But like, Mm. it's like, you should not come back to the United States. And he did anyway to testify at the trial and then get arrested. Um, So in February 1999, Schiller pled guilty to one count of false Medicare billing and was sentenced to 46 months in prison, which is the um, it was actually the lightest sentence that you could get for that particular crime.
2: Because you should have given him time served because he was in the fucking hospital.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) I think he paid for his crimes. (laughs) They also talk about this being kind of strange because the judge in his case actually gave um, testimony at his sentencing hearing, uh, commenting. I think it was commentary on like him testifying at the trial Mm -hmm. and kind of like she could see that this had caused him a lot of pain and like all these other stuff. But I'm kind of like, yeah, but he still did the crime. (laughs) He still did crime things, but it's fine. Dude yeah. got the shit beat out of them. Uh, yeah, so
2: really, that's worse than prison yeah. for forty six months. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um. So, along with this three part series in the Miami Miami New Times, which I honestly encourage you guys to read, we'll we'll put the links up. I think the links are already up on episode one thirty one. Um. It's really interesting and just fucking bonkers. So, in addition to those articles, Pete Collins also wrote a book by the same name. Uh, Mark Schiller also wrote two books about all of the events called "Pain and Gain: The Untold True Story" and "Pain and Gain: How I Survived and Triumphed."
2: Except for that little stint in prison,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah besides that, <laughs> that doesn't count. <laughs> and finally, <laughs> oh, Jesus, um, private investigator Ed Dubois also wrote a song. About Mark Schiller's ordeal called Pain and Gain Retribution Song. And I have a little clip I want to play. Just what is to, with
2: these fuck like why well, just also covered a case of the guy fucking
1: making music about bullshit?
2: <laughs> yeah, we just played that country song, remember? Oh yeah. yeah.
1: Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so here's this is a little clip of of the song by Ed Dubois. Um it's real It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> And his country, too!
0: I live in paradise, so they say Things shouldn't be this way This is like a
2: Santana, Jimmy Buffett yes. cover band Woke up this morning, knew
0: my name My broken body may never be the same For 30 days, I would change to a wall
1: it's about him being kidnapped. Okay, anyway. Oh, my God. Yeah, anyway. Not so- everything has to be a song, guys. <laughs> oh, my God. So that now is the whole story of Painting Gain, the Sun Jim Gang, Mark Schiller, and <laughs> Frank Griga. <laughs> it's crazy. The whole thing is just, you understand why I had to break it into two parts. Yeah, now, it's nuts. Yeah.
0: In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
2: Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms
0: and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: All right. So when you said Florida, I was like, oh, what do I want to cover? So I decided to like lean into the wilder side of Florida. Okay. Which one? (laughs) Wait for the pun. Wait for the pun drop. Now we've covered smuggling and white collar crimes before, but this is going to take a page out of Joe Exotic's book.
1: Oh god. Get it? Wilder side of Florida. Oh my god. Oh. My god.
2: We're going to talk about Operation Chameleon okay. and the smuggling of exotic animals into Florida. Oh shit.
1: Okay. Yeah. All right.
2: <laughs> I'm ready. I'm here for it. So exotic animal ownership is like a bit of a precarious kind of situation. Um, Some animals are illegal. uh, Some aren't. Some require permits. Well, most require permits to some degree. And the permit classifications deem just how easy or difficult it can be to obtain that uh, animal. Now, Florida separates exotic animals into three classes. And this is kind of where the permits start to come into play. Class one includes large cats, like tigers, uh, bears, almost all the primates, Komodo dragons, elephants, hippos, rhinos, and, quote, other potentially dangerous animals.
1: Yeah, Komodo dragons are... That- Those guys are fucking scary. If
2: you get bit by one, you'll automatically get infected. They have, like, poisonous saliva. Yeah, they're crazy. Um, class two includes uh, some additional primates, bobcats, servals, caimans, and other wild animals. And Class 3 includes all other wildlife that are not explicitly listed in Class 1 or 2 or specifically mentioned to be exempt from permitting. So confusing. Um, <laughs> but that can be things like chinchillas, mm. flying squirrels, sugar gliders, um, things like that. Sure. Animals exempt from permitting include non-venomous reptiles, ferrets, chinchillas, sugar gliders, like I said. But there's another caveat to this. You can't catch the wild animals and make them your pets. You have to obtain them through the proper channels.
1: Okay. So you
2: can't just, like, go out and catch a Komodo dragon and be like, you'm a pet now.
1: Um, I don't know how you would even. (laughs) Right? They're huge.
2: This is, like kind of where the joe exotic thing comes into play right if you saw joe exotic or you listened to the smuggling episode we covered you know that those proper channels are nefarious yeah there's no way to actually properly obtain an exotic animal yeah it just isn't a thing um and florida is a hotbed for exotic animal ownership and trafficking because the laws are kind of you know in the gray area with a lot of the animals Mm -hmm. um but also because of the environment that florida is Florida actually has the biggest problem with invasive non-native species. Okay. So the United States is considered the largest market for endangered reptiles, and officials warned that collectors are fueling this explosive growth in the illegal wildlife industry. So Florida is like the main reason why we're having all of these issues with like illegal trade of reptiles specifically. Good job, Florida. Florida. Yeah. According to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Florida is home to more non-native plants and animals than any other part of the country. These include, wait for it, hissing ducks, walking catfish, hermaphroditic river eels, blood-sucking worms, pet-eating monitor lizards, dog-sized rodents, gigantic snakes, and rodent-sized African land snails. Which, according to rumor, are smuggled in for esoteric religious
1: rituals. Rodents, wait, rodent <laughs> sized
2: Dogs. land snails? Yeah, so they're African land snails. African land snails. They're massive. Snail.
1: And gross. For sale was literally the second. Yeah. Ooh. A lot of these things are terrifying. I to don't look at. know. And why
2: you would want to possess them, I don't know.
1: I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah, it's gross.
2: So. That's that's huge. Like I said, the climate of Florida plays a huge reason. So the state's subtropical climate, and it has a ton of seaports, a lot of airports, bountiful farmland, and the eccentric people living there is what makes it a hotbed for kind of all of this – like all of these issues. So last year, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission – Voted unanimously to set rules that would ban owning and breeding six types of pythons, green anacondas, and nine high risk reptiles to kind of start to curb this issue. Okay. And according to uh, Florida Today, quote, Burmese pythons and 15 other exotic species named in the ban are a significant threat to Florida's ecology, economy, and human health and safety. The FWC and its federal partners spend more than eight Million dollars a year to manage not just the animals, but the destruction that they cause. Oh, God. Iguanas who are illegally brought into Florida burrow into and cause extensive damage to seawalls, canal banks, roads, and water control structures. Really? Dealing with tegu lizards alone consumes a third of the agency's budget for managing invasive species. Wow. So people realize that they can't handle these animals and they often let them go. And just release them into the wild. And because it's a tropical climate, they survive. Yeah. I had no <laughs> idea
1: that, like, iguanas would be so dangerous. They're damaging. not native <laughs> to Florida. Well, so if you see iguanas, because, you know, in well, the Well, they news, have a bunch of iguana farms down there, don't they? Yeah. If you see
2: in the news now, look, oh, all these iguanas are dropping out of the trees because it's so cold. Well, they're yeah. not native to Florida. Those are invasive iguanas.
1: Ah, so that's <laughs> not a bad
2: thing. No, not necessarily. Yeah. Um, but the business of exporting and importing exotic animals is extremely lucrative. And if you remember, rich people love fucking exotic animals. And if they're really hard to get, they're like, give me all of them. Yeah. And Floridians are just crazy enough to try and catch venomous snakes to sell. So <laughs> let's take a look at Operation oh, Chameleon. <laughs> In 1995, the Office of Law Enforcement of the United States Fish and Wildlife Services launched Operation Chameleon in an attempt to round up illegal reptile smuggling rings. Okay. The operation lasted for five or so years and used two acts as its main impetus for arresting these people. The first one is the obvious Endangered Species Act of 1973. This protects critical and endangered species. Uh, Section 9 exclusively prohibits unlawful take of such species, which means to harass, harm, hunt. Grab them. Gotcha. <laughs> Snatch them up. Okay. okay. Uh, Section 7 directs federal agencies to use their authorities to help conserve listed species. So now it's estimated that 25% of the U.S. reptiles and amphibians are endangered or at risk, and the number for exotic animals is much higher. The other act that kind of was assisting them in catching these people is the Lacey Act. Uh, The Lacey Act of 1900 is a conservation law in the United States that prohibits trade in wildlife, fish, and plants that have been illegally taken, possessed, transported, or sold. So the law prohibits the transportation of illegally captured or prohibited animals across state lines and addresses potential problems caused by the introduction of non-native species of birds and animals into native ecosystems. Okay. So we talked a little bit about this when we were talking about smuggling of plants um, in one of our previous episodes But across the state lines is what's the key here, because Florida. (laughs) They have really lax laws usually. So they have to use federal laws to kind of stick it to these particular people.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. Florida. (laughs) Oh, my God. They're very much about um, personal autonomy in literally every aspect of life, regardless (laughs) of what it is. So... Which, listen, I'm all about autonomy, but like. Now when it comes to smuggling
2: animals, within, damn it, within
1: <laughs> reason. Like, mm-hmm. let's not have child brides and like, yeah. um, you know, shit like that. Like, that'd be cool. Let's mm-hmm. not do that. <laughs> I vote yes. Let's also, do let's do stop, stop smuggling exotic animals, please. Yes. Thank you. So
2: Operation Chameleon managed to capture 26 animal smugglers originating from six countries. But we will look at the two most notorious fellows. Okay. Now. Anson Wong, also known as Wong Ken Liang, was a Malaysian businessman whose major export was exotic reptiles. Wong ran Sungai Rusa Wildlife in Penang in 1980, which was a legally constructed reptile export business. But he manipulated the lax laws in other countries, including Malaysia, and greased a few palms to make his business make even more money. Of course. As you do. His business was considered a private zoo, so he was able to buy and sell at his leisure. So that's the classification that he got in Malaysia. Okay. He acquired the moniker the Lizard King or the Serpent King. So that's what he was going by. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> Is it just like whatever animal you have and king you're the king of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, <Yep>. fair. fair.
2: <laughs> um not only did he sell and smuggle living animals, he also sold illegal items such as rhino horns, snow leopard pelts and panda bear skins. Wow,
1: that's super illegal. Yep. <laughs> Once you start selling illegal
2: things, why not sell all the illegal things? Might as well go hard in the paint. Yeah. So Wong's specialty, however, was live lizards like the Grey's monitor lizard. Okay. He paid mules to carry Komodo dragons hidden inside of suitcases and hid endangered Malagasy tortoises at the bottom of legal wildlife shipments. So kind of like sneaking them in there. Because are people really going to be able to identify different kinds of tortoises? The layman wouldn't know.
1: No. No, definitely not. I would not be able to look at two tourists and be like, those are the same. Right? They both got shells.
2: (laughs) Now, um, the kind of interesting thing that he did is that he would purchase vacation packages as cover, send men out to poach rare wildlife from breeding facilities like New Zealand and other places, but his biggest port of entry and place where he sold the most of his wares in the United States was Florida. So let's go to a Florida timeshare. We'll smuggle our Komodo dragons in our suitcases, and then we'll just give them to you. Oh, my God. (laughs) Now, Wong came into the United States crosshairs in the early 90s because of his most unique trick when it came to smuggling. Paperwork.
1: Oh, (laughs) I am intrigued.
2: Uh-huh. I'm intrigued. Okay. So we're going to throw a lot of information at you. Are you ready? No, but yes. <laughs> so we're going to talk a little bit about some uh, sites and appendixes and things that are, that are going to uh, come into play with this paperwork. So okay. the primary treaty governing international wildlife trade is the UN Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild, Fauna and Flora, aka sites. This classifies wildlife into three groups according to how close to extinction the species is perceived to be. Animals listed in Appendix 1, such as tigers and gorillas, are so close to disappearing they are banned from international commercial trade. Appendix 2 animals may be traded under a permit system, and Appendix 3 animals are protected by a country with a request that others honor the protection.
1: So it's like... Handshake agreement. (laughs) Not necessarily illegal, but we're just, like, asking you not to do this. pretty, pretty, please don't. Okay, okay.
2: Sites makes paperwork.
1: That's a weird category to
2: have, but Uh okay. So, Sites makes paperwork the key to moving wildlife. Smugglers like Wong scan the globe for countries with weak laws or corrupt law enforcement officials tasked with stamping their animals, documentation paper um, that is much in demand. So, like, they – Want to get these animals, they find a country that has the laxest laws, put in the Appendix 3 paperwork, get it stamped by a person, say like, oh, it's okay, and then take the animals. So technically, legal. Okay. The illegality of the animals in other countries where they're taking them, you know, it's based upon like, it's okay, they let us take it this time, so it should be okay with you.
1: Yeah. Because
2: the law is... It's a handshake agreement. Right. You're not supposed to. But if they say it's okay, yeah. then it's okay this time. Yeah. So that's kind of the okay. the weird paperwork sort of switcheroo that they were doing. I see. Mm-hmm. So in order to catch this guy, agents set up a reptile importing company outside of San Francisco and a retail operation in Reno, Nevada, and began doing business with Wong. Before long, they discovered Wong not only smuggled rare and endangered reptiles, but also critically endangered birds and mammals. Oh,
1: shit. Okay.
2: To arrest Wong, agents needed a ruse to lure him out of Malaysia. There is a lucrative international black market in bear bile, (laughs) which is used as a cure-all in traditional Asian medicine. So Bear bile? Yeah. Ooh. USFWS Special Agent George Morrison, acting undercover, offered Wong a piece of a bare bile smuggling operation he claimed to be running on one condition. The two men had to meet in person. Oh, I have to see you with my own eyes. <laughs> Weird. Wong agreed, but because he was already wanted in the United States on smuggling charges, he refused to meet there or in Canada. Okay. They agreed to go to Mexico instead, and when Wong stepped off a Japan Airlines flight in Mexico City on September 18, 1998, he was met by Morrison along with special assistant U.S. Attorney Robert S. Anderson and a team of Mexican federales who arrested him. (laughs) Nice try. (laughs) In June 2001, Wong was sentenced in California to 71 months in prison, fined $60,000, and banned from exporting to the United States for three years after his release. But the sentence did not stop him. It doesn't sound like a sentence that would stop anybody. No. While he was in prison, his wife ran his wildlife business, including sales to the United States. When he got out in 2003, Wong returned to Malaysia. In the summer of 2010, another smuggling operation was discovered at Kuala Lumpur International Airport when investigators examined a broken lock on a suitcase and found nearly 100 baby boa constrictors two rhinoceros vipers, and a South American Mata Mata turtle, all hidden inside. Oh, my God.
1: Jesus, that's a lot of snakes. I'm sorry. That's a lot of snakes. What
2: size was this fucking luggage?
1: <laughs> a suitcase. Well. Yeah. That's 103 that animals. viper. Right. Yeah, but baby snakes aren't, like, very big. You can cram a lot of those into But baby
2: boa constrictors are. <laughs> Nah, well, Wong was arrested after he came to collect the suitcase. So in November of 2010, a judge uh, sentenced Wong to five years in prison, a strict sentence for animal smuggling by no, by most of nation standards, um, and it was unprecedented in Malaysian history. So nowhere before has anyone been arrested in Malaysia for smuggling animals. Wow. Now, on February 22nd, 2012, Wong was freed after the Court of Appeals accepted his appeal to reduce the jail sentence from five years to 17 and a half months. Wong still smuggles legally through several shell companies he started in Malaysia after his first arrest to this day. Of course he does. That doesn't (laughs)
1: surprise me at all.
2: Our next and last nefarious person in this case is Tom Crutchfield, which may sound Oddly familiar because the unnamed reptile dealer at the beginning of Tiger King is none other than Tom Crutchfield.
1: Oh, why didn't they name him in Tiger King? <laughs> um, because of cases that were happening against
2: him. <laughs> oh, okay. He is considered the biggest reptile smuggler in the United States. Oh my God. Crutchfield started out as a carpet salesman, so naturally, reptile smuggling comes next. <laughs>
1: He actually he
2: started to develop his love of reptiles when he saw an albino python in National Geographics uh, in 1980. It was like this really popular cover that was like shocking for some reason. And people like were rushing to collect that particular copy of National Geographics to see this albino python. Weird. I, I okay. Don't know. The 80s were a strange time. Yeah. <laughs> Um, he actually purchased the first documented albino python for $21,000 in 1981. Wow. He then started to raise captive albino pythons, and Bob Clark was even interested
1: in the snake raising. So he even gave some money. Bob Clark. Yeah. Old, old TV guy. <laughs> that sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a person I should know. Yes.
2: Um, He also raised the first albino iguana and supplied reptiles to movies such as Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Of course. Famous reptile guy. His first conviction, however, came in 1992 when he illegally imported Fiji iguanas. Now, can you guess where he got these Fiji iguanas from? Fiji? A A person. Oh. Oh. Joe Exotic? No. The last man we just talked about,
1: Anson Wong. (laughs) He got him from Anson Wong. Oh, that's funny.
2: Crutchfield operated Herpeta Fauna Incorporated, which was where he housed the reptiles he was buying and selling. He and his wife were convicted, and he was sentenced to 17 months in federal prison and fined $10,000 for illegal importing. I think she just got an additional fine, and that was it. Yeah, this effectively put him on the federal radar as well. So only three years later, he would be convicted again for illegally importing iguanas. Again, he's got an iguana fetish. After his sentence, Tom Crutchfield was like serving five months of home detention, then two years of probation and was fined $3,000. So did that stop Tom Crutchfield? It never does. Absolutely not. It never does. <laughs> um, he is He is the true Florida man. Um, in true Florida man fashion, he doubled down and decided to pull off his biggest smuggling job to date.
1: Was this like the the one to end all yes, smuggling? Yes, the jobs? one the last job score to rule them all. Yeah. He
2: was going to get 200 reptiles out of Madagascar with the assistance of three other internationally renowned smugglers. Now, this is made for a movie.
1: This is, yeah, <laughs> this is like calling the top smugglers this for is one like, big score. This is like the Italian job of yes. smuggling reptiles. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Now, the problem was, he was already under investigation as part of Operation Chameleon when he's like, let's pull off the biggest job yet, guy.
1: Wow, timing is everything, really I gotta is. tell you. In
2: 1997, U.S. Marshals and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services had Crutchfield under surveillance. He enlisted the help of two Germans, Wolfgang Klo and Frank Le Maire, and a Japanese man named Keho Tomono. Um, The goal was to smuggle in 200 reptiles and amphibians, including Madagascar tree boas, Madagascar ground boas, as well as several species of turtles. Crutchfield found out that the U.S. marshals were on him, so he decided to flee. Of course. He left for Belize. After being in Belize for six months, he was arrested by authorities as the U.S. was looking for him. Now, he was thrown into Belize jail, and while uh, he was in there waiting for extradition, some horrible shit happened to him, like really bad stuff. And I'm not going to cover it because there is a whole ass episode of featured about him on Locked Up Abroad. Okay. So if you want to hear about all the shit that he endured in the Belize jail, you can watch Locked Up Abroad. My God, I can only imagine. Um, but it wasn't a good time. Yeah. It was a bad time. Yeah. So eventually, the U.S. got him back into the States. They did this in a particular way because in order to get him out, um, legally, it would be through an extradition process, which, which could take years right. to get it from Belize because they don't have a great agreement. Yeah. So they struck up a deal with the police, the local police to get him out. Um, they had him officially expelled from the country, saying okay. that he was doing improper things according to Belize law. So they had him expelled and then they sent him back to the United States. Uh, to the Miami airport where he was arrested by authorities um, where he was facing 10 felony indictments
1: damn Yeah. damn that's a lot of felonies
2: so on April 16th 1999 he was sentenced to 30 months imprisonment and 150 hours of community service for wow. 10 felonies damn okay
1: um that's uh-huh. nothing that's absolutely nothing <laughs> it's like a slap on the wrist
2: it really is. His wife Penny was also a fugitive. Uh, she actually recently surrendered to U.S. authorities in Belize and was also expelled.
1: Oh, she was um, still in Belize. Yeah. Oh, no. shit. Okay.
2: <laughs> she pled guilty to a felony in Orlando, Florida, um, and I think she only got a fine and like house arrest. So. Yeah. Wow. That was Operation Motherfucking Chameleon. Oh my god, that's <laughs> wild. That's um. So when you see wild animals in Florida, just beware. They're probably not a native species, and they'll probably fuck you up.
1: (laughs) Well, before you decide to take a vacation to Florida... Don't pet that iguana. (laughs) (laughs) And check out this podcast.
2: (laughs) Murder Road Trip is a true crime podcast where I, your host, Haley, discuss murder cases in my car, a.k.a. the Mobile Beats Lab. Join me and my partner in crime, H.H. Gnomes, on the road. There will be games, mixtapes, and snacks as I make the research journey to murder scenes around the world. Make sure to check your back seat, and I'll see you at the next rest stop.
1: Well, Janelle, that has been our show. It was wild. Um, <laughs> it was wild. To, so, what do you, I know? We got some stuff now. Do we got some stuff going on? We got some stuff. going on. Are we going on. somewhere? We are trying to. We're I going think somewhere. it's somewhere. Um. Why don't you
2: guys meet us July twenty third at Parapalooza? I feel like there should be firework explosions when I say that. Yeah, Parapalooza. We don't have the official time when we're going to go on for our live show, but Parapalooza is this kind of massive paranormal event happening. Is is it Bridgeview or Bridgeport? I get confused with Uh, the bridges. I think it's Bridge. Um, I forget. (laughs) Bridgeview.
1: Let's see.
2: But it is a big paranormal event. There's going to be live podcast shows from us and Ghostly Podcast. It is $25 for the entire event, uh, $10 for kids. And there is an optional add-on for Ghost Bus Tour for an additional $25. So you can spend like, it starts at noon, goes till 11 o'clock at night. It's like a huge festival, basically. So you could spend your time there doing all kinds of things. <laughs> so it's
1: at the Pavilion in Bridgeview, Bridgeview, Illinois. That's what I thought it was Bridgeview. Yeah. yeah. They're um, going to have some like, tri- there's going to be a Rob Zombie tribute band uh-huh. that yeah. I think sounds kind of interesting. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah, all the music will be um, in the evening and yeah. then all of the yeah. podcasts and things will be earlier in the day. And I think the ghostbus tour is around like, Right after dinner time, I think, is when it was happening. Yeah. Um, But you can go on to our um, Facebook page and get a link to purchase tickets. It's through Eventbrite. Um, So if you uh, search Parapalooza on Eventbrite, it should come up for you. Um, But we'll be there. We'll be hanging out, telling stories. Yeah, um, you'll have the option to go do ghost tours. And it's going to be all so kinds fun. of interesting
1: things. Yeah, it's like the perfect for me. It's like the perfect cross section of like the paranormal and just like the crimey kind of horry, mm-hmm. dark side stuff. Like the perfect mesh. And we've worked with ghostly plenty of times now. Mm-hmm. I love working with them. Yeah, it should be a really really good time. Yeah, I'm excited. It's gonna be fun. That's all I got. <laughs> That's all we got here, for right now. Up. Here, here, yeah, um, so you can you can find information for all of that on all of our social media we are um, on Facebook and Instagram, Bad Taste Crime Podcast we are on Twitter at BT Podcast yep. um, BTC Podcast BTC Podcast <laughs> <laughs> um, you can, if you enjoyed this episode you can find more like this at our website badtastepodcast.com where we also have links to our merch pages and our um, if you want to Donate to the show. You can do that. I, we, I know we haven't talked about that in a while. I don't think that's. I think that's it. I think that's all yeah, we got. That's all of our um, stuff. So with that, our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zegschewski, The Enigma. <laughs> this has been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. We will see you in two weeks. Goodbye.
2: See you later, alligator. Oh my god. Uh, <laughs> oh god. Uh, Florida. <laughs> <laughs> oh boo. Uh. <laughs>
0: It was down.